Well, I was crouching down behind some bushes with my first grade friend, and in my hand were some rocks. Nothing good happens to boys who are bored. Crouching down behind some bushes, and the road in front of Ford Street in Llano, Texas was in front of us, and we decided it would be a great idea to just throw and hurl some rocks over the bushes at some cars that were passing by. Don't try that, kids. And I began to toss some little rocks over and nothing happened for a while. And then there's this blue car that comes along and I'd crouch down, throw it and crash. My friend's eyes got big and he ran that way to his house and I ran this way to my house, ran in the door and I hid in the dining room and my mom said, what'd you do? A few minutes later, I'm still crouching in the dining room. Doorbell rings, and my mom answers the door, and she says, well, hello, Miss Kirkendile, how are you? By the way, that's how you say the, the road down there, Kirkendile. At least Atlanta, Texas, or the hillbillies are, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Hello, how you doing, Miss Kirkendile? What brings you here today? And she says, well, I'm driving down Ford Street, and something, a rock, hits my windshield. And I saw Seth running toward your house. And the scariest thing in that moment for me is, is that I don't know this woman, but she knows me. And my mom dealt with the situation. Miss Kirkendall left, and I was in big, big trouble for breaking Miss Kirkendall's window. What I found out after that was Miss Kirkendall was a fourth grade teacher down the hall from my mom who was a second grade teacher and they hung out in the teacher's lounge all the time. Your sin will find you out, kids. That's not the end of the story, though. We could go somewhere with that, but that's not the end of the story. Fast forward three years, it's August, and I'm going into fourth grade, and my mom calls, comes in the room with this big smirk on her face, and she says, Seth, guess who your fourth grade teacher's going to be this year? Miss Kirkendall, you also reap what you sow. And so I go to class, and I'm trying to behave the first couple of weeks of class, and I'm observing some things in Miss Kirkendall's class. Miss Kirkendall was very patient, or so it seemed. She didn't correct all the boys who were talking in class. She would simply turn behind her and do something on her board behind her and not say a word for the first two weeks. And so I'm thinking, I'm in the clear. I could start acting up in Miss Kirkendall's class a little bit. And we get to the end of the six weeks. You know what happens at the end of six or nine weeks, kids? What happens? You get a what? A report card. Report card comes. It's always the day of reckoning in the family, Right? Report card comes, and back then, parents couldn't access things online. We just didn't know what was going to happen, unless you're 20 yards down, the, down the, the, the hallway and your mom's a teacher. And I get my report card, and my grades aren't bad. But my, we used to call it deportment, conduct, behavior, I got an F. And I couldn't figure out why I got an F. And so the next day, I marched myself into Miss Kirkendall's room amongst some other people, and I got in trouble at home. Listen, if your parents are teachers, they expect more from your grades, and my parents took a pound of flesh if my deportment wasn't right. And so I marched myself, and I'm, Miss Kirkendall, can you explain why I got an F in conduct in your class? And she says, why don't you have a seat? 
And she begins to explain to the whole class how she deals with conduct in her class. What we'd been observing for six weeks is her turning around when somebody was talking or acting up and making marks on a board. I didn't have the wherewithal to go look at the board and what was going on. And so she explained to the whole class how she deals with conduct. She said, listen, she's a former math teacher. She was homeroom for everybody. Down the left side of this chart is your name. And if you get more than 10 marks, you go from an A to a B in deportment. You get 10 more, you go from a B to a C and so on. And I got an F, so you just do the math on that deal. Four weeks. I was good for two weeks. Report cards. Day of judgment. Maybe you don't get report cards anymore. Maybe you have performance reviews if you work for somebody. That day comes. Evaluations. If you're a teacher, you've got observation or teacher evaluation. If you're in sales, it's just the, the, each quarter's sales numbers are really your performance evaluation. Today we come to the second chapter of the book of Revelation, and you're going to see Jesus' report card on the current churches in, in that day. The performance review of the churches in Asia Minor that we've been talking about so far. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. It's the last book in your Bible, and we'll begin to look at these seven churches this morning starting with the church in Ephesus. This is the church we, as readers of the New Testament, have more information about because we have a book of the Bible called Ephesians, and it's written about this. We look in the book of Acts and the missionary journeys, and there's more data in the book of Acts on this church than any other church. So we'll look today at the church in Ephesus, and we will see their report card. Let me ask you, though, as, before we begin, when we think about performance, when we think about report cards, I wonder what Jesus would say about our church today. Christ Community Church, what kind of report card would we get? What would Jesus applaud? What would Jesus commend about our church? What would he want to correct or point out about our church that needs work? And what warnings would he give to our church as a church bought by the blood of Jesus. And when you think even of your own life, what in your own life would Jesus commend in your life today? What would he want to correct? What motives of the heart would he want to look and bear down in in your life? And is Jesus willing to walk with you through those corrections? Is he willing to offer his help for you. That's what we're going to see in this text. We're going to see what Jesus applauds in this church, this mothership church in Asia Minor that was getting a lot of things right for the last 40 years. And then we're going to see how, what he wants to correct in this church. And then does Jesus offer any help? Ephesians, excuse me, Ephesians. Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Let me read it for us this morning. Chapter 2, 1 through 7. Church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, that's Jesus, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Think about that, Jesus walking amongst his churches. I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are 
and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, second time he said it, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but, look at verse 4, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, the first love. You've abandoned it. Verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand, warning, from this place unless you repent. Yet this you have done, this is something good, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear. C3. What the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. A little bit about this church in Ephesus. We studied the book a few last year, and so maybe you recall a little bit about this church. This church in Ephesus, Ephesus is like a port city in Asia Minor, and it is... Um, really one of the main ports that, to get into Asia. There's 250,000 plus people there. It's a thriving city, at least at this time. Religiously, it's an interesting place. It's an interesting place because they worship the fertility god Artemis, if you're Roman, and Diana, if you are Greek, which is considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I think we have a picture of it here. If you were in Ephesus, you would see this temple from any point in the city. It was the center of not only the religiosity of the city, but it was also the center of, com center of commerce. Everything in the city revolved around the worship, the religious worship of the god of Artemis. What do we know about this God, it's interesting too because economically the city is driven. It's driven by this um, worship. You see this temple, and it's interesting when you turn to the book of Acts is because you see from Acts 18 through 20 how firm in their belief they were of this God Artemis. So much so, they didn't want mind Paul to a certain extent when there was a riot in the city. The, one of the leaders of the city said, hey, don't worry about these Christians. Don't worry about them because everyone, the whole world knows the great God Artemis is supreme. And so they were fervent in their belief, but it's really a twisted false worship like all false worship is. You see, they would, in this temple that you see up here, they would have criminals who would seek asylum. They're, they had priests and priestesses who were functionally prostitutes and part of worship to the fertility god Artemis was that people would, sorry kids, would have sexual relations with the, with the priestesses that were prostitutes in the temple. It was seen as worship. There was rampant wickedness involved in the worship of Artemis. And they also had statues like household idols. I think we have a picture of that. Look at that. You want that in your house? If I walked into the dark and flipped on the light, that would scare the tar out of me. This is what they used to worship, and they made tons of money off these. They would, they would make these. These silversmiths would make these. Remember the guy in, in Ephesus that was so mad at Paul and the movement of the gospel that moved forward and people coming to know Jesus by the word of God, and Demetrius didn't like it because it was affecting his pocketbook, 
the worship of Jesus was affecting the whole city because people stopped buying these and people started burning their magic books in Ephesus because of the way, because of Christianity. So many people were coming to know Jesus in the city. There's a philosopher that's from Ephesus and his name was Heraclitus and he was known as the weeping philosopher. He would go around the city and he said, all I see is evil. All I see is sexual immorality. I see wickedness all over my city so I can't smile and I can't laugh. I just weep as I walk through this city. See, Ephesus was like the cities of our day. May have looked different, but it was like the cities of our day who evidence all the things of a city without God. All the evidences and all the false beliefs of a city without God. And yet, Paul comes to this city and he plants a church in a city. Imagine two different cities together for a minute. Mecca, Saudi Arabia, center of the worship for a Muslim, right? Imagine a place like that who 100% of the city worships their God, Allah. And you mix in with that kind of place that is that fervent, a place like New Orleans, a place like Las Vegas or Amsterdam, and you put that together and that's the kind of city you have in Ephesus and yet the gospel goes there. Paul goes there. If you turn to Acts 18, you see Apollos, this great teacher of the word, the gospel of Jesus. He preaches the gospel. Priscilla and Aquila know that name in the book of Acts. They stay there, and Paul stays in Ephesus more than he stayed anywhere else for almost three years. And he teaches there, and they plant a church in the middle of this destitute city. They plant this church, and it grows. And Paul says about this church, writing about 10 years after it plants, says, you are a church that has deep faith. You are a church that has deep love for all the saints amongst you. You're a church who is doctrinally sound, even though the culture around you has given way to sexual immorality. You have held the line. And yet Jesus says about 30 years later, some things have remained like that, and some things have changed. Let's look at it. What's changed? What's remained the same? Look at this. Jesus the one who walks with this church, the one in power that holds the churches, he cares for the churches, he's present in his church. Look at verse two. Amidst all that context, he says this, I know your works. Okay, this is about 30 years later after what I just talked about with Paul in the book of Ephesians. I know your works. I know your toil. The word toil there is literally breaking a sweat. You do ministry and you break a sweat. You come and set up on Sunday morning and you break a sweat. You come and practice worship and you break a sweat. You serve one another. You break a sweat. You're hard working. We would say you serve faithfully. So he's applauding. Jesus is applauding their service. He says you're patiently enduring. He says it multiple times. He says you're bearing up for my name's sake. Why would they need to do that? They would need to do that because they wouldn't bear with those who are evil. So think about what I described in Ephesus. 
that they wouldn't bear with that evil. They wouldn't participate in sexual immorality. And they held the line doctrinally. So they, they're holding the line morally to say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord of my body. It's not mine, it's his. It's not my body, my choice. It's his body, his choice. The temple, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and I'm gonna treat it as such. It's not mine, it's Jesus's. And so they didn't give way morally in this culture. They didn't give way doctrinally. And then you look down at verse six and it's kind of just thrown in there. You hate the works. This is Jesus speaking. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This is Jesus saying he hates something. Who are the Nicolaitans? You're going to see them again in the church at Pergamum. And so we think that they are a false teaching sect that started in Acts chapter 6. If you go to Acts chapter 6, you're going to see the apostles appointing seven different men to functionally be deacons, and one of them is Nicholas. And so they appointed a guy who was really a false teacher, but he had influence, he had wealth and influence in the church. And here's what he did. Unlike the Jews who in the New Testament we have pro- that, that Paul and the apostles had problems with because they wanted to say it's the gospel of Jesus plus circumcision plus the law. You've got to believe in Jesus, but you also have to do more works. So that was one problem in the New Testament, but the other problem was, remember when Paul said in Romans 6, shall we continue to sin that grace might increase? There was Groups of people that would say, well, if God's grace is that great, I'm just going to keep sinning so I get more grace. It'd kind of be current day, hey, Jesus has forgiven me, but I'm going to live like hell because he will give me more and more and more grace. That was called, first century, antinomianism. And all it was was I have license to treat my body or whatever I want any way I want to. I can live licentiously. And it's okay with Jesus. And so the Nicolaitans were a sect like that. Convenient in the city of Ephesus, right? See, also our day, a sexually moving culture that has moved so far sexually into sexual immorality as the norm. And it sees people who don't as bigots. sees people who hold the moral line as the problem, as the moral problem. This would fit well in the city of Ephesus. This would fit well with a church willing to move the line a little bit, wouldn't it? And Jesus says, you hate their deeds. Notice he doesn't say he hates them. Remember that. He doesn't hate the people. He hates their deeds. How does that sit with some of you? That Jesus hates the deeds of the sexually immoral. He hates those deeds, especially if it's moving into his church as the norm and okay. And so here's your first thought this morning. Jesus applauds hardworking, morally and doctrinally faithful churches for the long haul. He applauds it. He celebrates it. He's encouraging them. He's saying, I'm walking with you. You're doing well in this way. Be encouraged, C3. Jesus sees. He sees your toil. He sees your labor He sees you coming on Sunday to set up. He sees your care for people in your community group. He sees your service to his church. He sees your participation, and he applauds it. 
He sees the moral line that you're willing to take. He sees a doctrinal faithfulness not to give way to culture even though it would be easy, even though it might grow a church in some places like around us to move the moral line. He says, good on you. C3, you should be encouraged. I don't have, I've been here four years and I haven't seen people coming and saying, we need to move these lines. We need to move moral lines to acquiesce to a culture. It's not that big of a deal. I haven't seen that. We need to move doctrinal lines to be more appealing to the masses. I haven't seen that from this church. I haven't seen that from elders who are faithful to love Jesus and care about truth, to love the truth and also to love people well. You should be encouraged. Let us not grow weary, C3. And doing good, even though it's hard, in due season, God's season, we will reap if you do not give up. That's what Galatians 6 says. Listen, here's what we need. We need more churches in our day to hold the line. And you don't have to hold the line with a baseball bat. Like you're mad at the world. Remember, he hated the deeds, not the people. We need churches, though, that hold the line that don't move it doctrinally or morally to fit a culture around us. We don't need to capitulate to be the cool kid church necessarily. We want to do things excellently in every aspect of our church, but we're not going to move lines to appeal to a culture. We need more churches that aren't just fast food, drive-through Sunday morning churches that people come and will give you an hour and leave and go out into the world and come back the next Sunday. We need churches that are faithful to come and worship, churches that are faithful to come together and learn to be a part of one another's lives, to be on mission together for Jesus. We need more churches like that, do we not? Listen, this is why, if you've ever wondered This is why we talk some and often about church planting, the importance of church planting, and church importance of planting new churches that are faithful, morally, doctrinally, in their labor, because it's a whole lot functionally easier to plant new churches that start that way, to take churches in the long term who have lost their path, even though God will do that sometimes, that have lost their path and have lost their lampstand and bring them back. So church planting and revitalization to us is is super important. Some of you know this. If you don't, I'm glad I'm sharing it. We're a part of a network of churches that wants to raise up ministry leaders and church planters to plant churches. We started this network a couple of years ago. It is up to four, five, almost five churches now. And me and a number of other pastors in Texas have started a new network of churches that care about truth, that care about moral lines, that that want to see churches planted and people raised up for the gospel. We have three churches. And this is part of our mission movement. We give money to this. We invest in this. It's called P3 Collective. I got a website coming out next month. I'm going to share it with all y'all. And so you can see what God is doing with the resources that you give to this church and missions. 
One of the reasons giving financially is so important because we have gospel reach beyond what's going on here. To see these kinds of churches planted and revitalized, there's a church planting in Baytown, there's a church planting in the valley. Ever been to the valley? There's a church planting in College Station. With these kind of markers, that's why we're about this. So, so far, look at this, church. The report card looks pretty good, doesn't it? Jesus is applauding their doctrine, their morality. He's applauding their endurance. He's applauding all their work. And yet you look at verse 4 and it shifts. There's something wrong. See, all the things that he's applauding, most of those things are external in verses 2 and 3. Jesus now turns to the internal. He turns to maybe the things that only he can see that you might not see on the outside, but Jesus can because he can see the heart. Look at it. See, this is a real danger in verse 4. Look at verse 4. But I have this against you. You've done all these things. You work hard. You labor. You got doctrine right. You got orthodoxy right. You hold the moral line. Good for you. But you have abandoned the love you had at the first. You've forgotten the motivation of work and ministry and right doctrine and right practice in your life is about loving God and loving people. What's the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment. And after 40 years of enduring and working really hard and holding the line, something's happened internally with this church. And we know it's happened internally that's changed because you could go read the book of Ephesians and you can see Paul saying, you're doing great with loving each other. So second generation, third generation of this church, something's changed in their heart. They're going through the motions of working hard. They're going through the motions. They're holding to truth, but they're not doing it because they love Jesus and they want to impact people necessarily. They're holding lines, but their heart is far from the Lord. You know in the Bible, all the way through You know what you see about the Lord? You see in the garden, when they've sinned against God, what does God say? Where are you? Do you not think that God knows where they are? He wants them to return. He wants them to come back and admit. You get through the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, for example, this is my people's heart. They'll do all these works They'll do all this sacrifice, but their hearts are so far from me. I don't care about any of the things they're doing. Their hearts are far from me. You see Jesus saying the same thing in Matthew 15. They do these works, but their hearts are far from me. What does God want? Christianity is not a religion of just do, 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 and you get. Do, 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 and here's the vending machine, and you get. God wants you. He wants me. He wants my heart. He wants your heart. See, here's the thought. Jesus grieves when our love for God and others grows cold. And you may be sitting here going, that's me. 
Can I tell you that's been me too? This affects all of us. Dare I say there is a natural waxing and waning of love. And yet Jesus is saying, you better find it. Find your love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I've got a few texts I want to show you about this to help us. 1 Corinthians 13, you know it's the love chapter, right? Love is patient, love is kind. A few verses before you get to the descriptors of love. Paul says this to the Corinthians. Remember the Corinthians and all their problems. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, meaning I could be eloquent, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong. I want you to picture that in your head. I'm speaking, but I'm just a gong nobody's listening to. You ever been there with somebody? Or clanging cymbal. You're talking, but I'm not listening because you don't have love. We might get our doctrine right. We may speak well about God and who he is, but if I don't have love, we're just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. There's no worth in it. If I have prophetic powers or, and understanding all of mysteries and all knowledge, meaning I'm really smart and I know all the truth, I can tell you all the truth, I can answer all your questions, and if I have all faith, meaning I trust the Lord so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I'm something? No, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, meaning I'm a servant, I'm a sacrificial servant, and I give everything away to the poor, and I deliver up my body, means I'm even willing to sacrifice my body to be burned, a martyr, and I don't have love, I gain nothing. See, that's divine math right there. Doesn't work with the way we do math, but that's divine math. You got nothing if you don't have love. I'll be a song about that. C3, this hits hard, <laughs> this hits hard. I wanna say this maybe to a slice of us, or a slice of y'all. There are people here that have been here for a long time. This church is 11, am I right, 11 years old? It's had to endure some trial, it's had to endure some pain. Some of you can reflect on enduring pain and leadership. Four or five years ago, you've been through that. You held it together. You worked hard for a really long time here. As a mobile church, you come and set up and you take down. You do life together. You do ministry together. And that's a beautiful thing. You hold the line morally together, doctrinally together. It's a beautiful thing. But one of the things that can happen as you serve Jesus and as you do ministry together, your heart Instead of looking up at Jesus and saying, I'm doing this because I love you. I'm doing this because I want a church that loves you and loves people. What tends to happen is we, we, in the toil and the endurance and the hard, we tend to start looking like this. Well, that person's not serving like I am. We start comparing. Our hearts start getting bitter. And we look more and more at our church well, these new people are coming. They don't serve like I serve, right? And so we've taken our eyes off Jesus and the motivation of loving Jesus to our service and our toil and our labor. And this can happen to any of us at any point like that. And we get bitter and we get frustrated. And our hearts grow cold because our motivation isn't love for Jesus anymore. It's look at me. 
Look at how hard I work. Or, if you've been here for a while, and you've gone through the ebbs and flows of attendance and numbers and people, and you go, man, maybe we need to be like the church over there. It has the light show, and it has this deal, and this thing, and this thing, and this thing, and this thing, and we, because we just need to grow this thing more than we need to be faithful to Jesus in our calling as a church. Our hearts, listen church, faithful, Bible, believing, holding the line morally, hardworking churches, those are beautiful things. But if we lose the right motivation of love for our Savior and love for one another, we can get here as an Orthodox church, can we not? There's a warning here for all churches like us who are gospel-centered, who take the truth seriously, who work hard. There's a warning for every one of us in here to take our eyes off him and look at one another and start comparing and getting bitter. And maybe we need to ask God to give us some grease for our squeaky wheel. I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying it's interesting when I look at this text at how faithful this church had been doctrinally and morally and with their work And it's interesting that they, as the mothership church, as the church that everyone in the first century looked at and said, man, they're amazing. They lost their first love. They lost love for Jesus. And maybe they look like this guy after 40 years. We got it? Whoo. That's his smile, man. That's his smile on on a good day. That's the greeter of the church. That's an elder who's been there too long, man. And maybe your face doesn't look like that. I'm not picking on older people, by the way. Get a young person up there, too. I was getting in trouble here. Be careful. I'm just in the middle, so I get in trouble from everybody. Or I say I'm in the middle. Maybe your face didn't look like that. But maybe your heart does. Maybe your heart does. I just want to take evaluation. Jesus sees. He sees our hearts. He sees our frustrations. There's a right place to put all those. Right? And, and, and here's the natural kind of thing that happens. Think about the words here. Where he says, you, you lost your love that you had at first. I want you to think about, think about the first time as Texans you saw the Rocky Mountains. Think about the first time you saw the ocean. I'm not talking about Galveston. I'm talking about like the Pacific or Atlantic. Right? That's not an ocean. <laughs> think about the first time you hit a home run. Think about the first time you made a par or a birdie, golfers. I, didn't, I was going to say hole-in-one, but it's difficult. Think, <laughs> think about the first time. Think about all the first. I want you to think about your dating relationship with your spouse. Melly and I were talking the other day, and we pulled out some old letters that we were writing back and forth. I lived in Denton. She lived in Seguin. And we dated long distance for four years. And so we didn't see each other a lot. We would call. We would write each other. And we pull out these letters, and there's just this sweet oozing to these letters. And we see it now, like, is a beautiful thing, but a really cheesy thing, too, right? <laughs> and we laugh at that, and yet there's something beautiful about that that reminds me, and reminds me, like, there's a sweetness to that first love, right? And I think in our, our marriage, that we're, we're trying to recapture some of those things, and yet there's a depth, Right? There's a way deeper depth to our relationship because we've gone through ups and downs. We've gone through things for 20 years. But it's 
kind of like marriage, your love can ebb and flow. Your love can grow cold. But here's the beauty. Jesus offers. This is grace. He offers hope in the midst of that. He offers hope and remedy to our cold hearts. He also offers a warning to our cold hearts as a church and as a people. Look at verse uh, 5. Here's the remedy. See it? Remember. Here's the hope. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Remember what the works of your church before, the history of your church, that you're faithful not only in doctrine and practice and toil, but you're faithful in love for one another. Go look at that. Go think about that. Go talk to your grandparent. How do you get that back? Remember your love. Repent. Turn from your coldness of heart and come back. These are believers in Jesus, most of them. Just repent of it and ask the Lord to restore you to the joy of your salvation and the joy of serving, maybe like you had before. You see that? Here's the thing. We love because Christ loved us first, right? How do we do with one another? When you can tell that your spouse's love is cold, do you isolate them or do you treat them like Jesus treats you? But here's the warning, and this is sobering. I've been thinking about this all week. Look at the warning. If not, church, your love has grown cold, return, remember, do the works you did before, but if you don't, Orthodox Church, I will come. I don't think that's talking about the second coming. I think it's talking about I will show up and remove your lampstand from its place unless you turn, unless you repent, unless you return to your love. Now listen, I don't know if you do this with your kids. I hope you do. As as you go, you're teaching them about the Lord. A few months ago, we're driving around, and I saw a church, some things that are happening in this denomination over the last couple years, really 30 years. I said, Claire, sorry, Claire, pointing you out. I was not going to do that. Claire, (laughs) oh, we're 10 bucks now. That's our deal. (laughs) Dang. I said, Claire, let me, tell you about, let me tell you about this church and this denomination and where it's gone and the lines that it's crossed morally and theologically. And we began to talk about it. And she turned to me and wisely said, is that a real church? I said, that's a great comment. I think they gather together and they would call themselves a church, but I think Jesus would say their lampstand is gone. And, that, I, I don't, and I told her, I don't take any joy in saying that. That's an that's a awful thing. It's easy for us as a Bible-believing church who holds the moral line and does a lot of work to point at churches like that, though, and say, they've lost their lampstand. But the scary, sobering reality of this text is that dead Orthodox churches can lose their lampstand as well. I want you to think about that. Churches that get doctrine right and morals right, that hold the line and labor hard, can also, Jesus can walk the other way if our love grows cold for him. That terrifies me. Does that terrify you? 
Can I ask you, just as a believer in Jesus, have, have you lost some of your love for Christ as the motivation of your believing the truth and toil? This is a massive, massive warning for us. It's, it's sobering that Jesus, the one who walks with the church, will walk away from the church. He will exit stage left. He will blow out the lampstand of a dead, even orthodox church. That's a check for us, is it not? You find your heart cold to Jesus, though. The beautiful thing is this. Jesus is saying, come on back. He's saying, come on back. I'll warm your heart up to me. Remember me. Return. Repent. My spirit will work in your life if your heart is cold. We all struggle with this. Let's be honest. So let's, let's just summarize the report card. It looks good with their work. It looks good with their morals. It looks good with their doctrine. But their internal heart is the problem, and yet Jesus offers them hope. He offers them remedy as the great physician. He offers them a way to return. Isn't that a beautiful thing? But he also gives warning. And he says, my lampstand I will take from you if it doesn't change. You know, after I got that report card from Miss Kirkendile, my first thought after I got my report card, before I heard her chart, was I am going to take a pound of flesh all year long for throwing those rocks at her car. I'm going to have less inches on my backside because she's still angry with me. She still wants retribution for what I did four years ago. And you know what I found the rest of that year? I didn't find a person like that at all. I found a teacher who, when I was struggling with math, because I was terrible at math, still am, she would stay after, and she would help me. She was patient with me. She would, maybe because she knew I had some strict parents, I don't know, she would go down this hall to my mom in the teacher's lounge and say, hey, Seth's doing really good in this, this, and this. Thank you, Ms. Kirkendall. My grandfather died in fourth grade. And I came back after a few days of being absent, and there was this fold-out that she had made, and she asked the class, like 20 kids in this class, to write a note to me. Four years ago when we moved, I was in the attic, and I was going through old stuff, and I kept it. I still have it. If I had to pick from K to 12th grade, my favorite teacher, she would be at the top of the list. We didn't start out so well. <laughs> but she was a, a teacher who saw me for the child that I was, that needed direction, that needed correction, that needed, though, encouragement, that needed patience, that needed some belief. And can I tell you in an exponentially greater way that Jesus endured the rocks that we hurled at him? He endured us running away from him. He endured our lack of love, even presently endures our lack of love, and he went to a cross that we effectively put him on. He died and paid the penalty of our sins for our faults and our failures, and he still offers sacrifice and long-suffering love for you in spite of you and in spite of me. He offers his abiding 
presence, even with hearts that are prone to wander still, even with hearts that wax and wane. And he calls us as a church to live out the love that we had at first. See, he's the great teacher. He's the great physician. He's the only physician that offers healing for the remedy of our sin and gives us a hope and assurance and promises us, as the end of this text will say, you know what the promise is? It's the hope of eternal life where we get to take of the tree of life again. Do you see that? Look at verse 7. The tree of life is the promise for the one who overcomes. The one who overcomes isn't the super Christian. It's just the one who continues to be faithful, whose love waxes and wanes and yet remains until the end. And trust him. What's awaiting for you and me is the paradise of God. Verse 7, in the tree of life, the last time in the Bible you see the tree of life is Genesis. When Adam and Eve take of it and then they sin against God and that tree of life was meant to provide sustenance for people living in the presence and fellowship with God without sin and sustain them forever. And yet when they, we sin against God, what happens? God puts an angel in front of the tree of life, which is an act of his mercy. Better that we die and be raised anew than continue to be sustained by the tree of life. And yet you see the tree of life the next time. The next time you see it from Genesis is right here. So for those of us who overcome, for those of us who believe in Jesus, what awaits you and me is the ultimate hope of heaven, is the sustenance of the tree of life that he provides in heaven. Isn't that beautiful? Listen, I think the word to the church at Ephesus, the word is keep the main thing the main thing. You've just forgotten. You're so busy doing ministry, you've made it about ministry and not about me. You're so busy holding to my truth, you've made it about holding to a body of knowledge, not just about me, the author of truth, the revealer of truth. Return to me. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Perhaps that's a message that you just need to refresh on. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You can't do that alone. God's Spirit will help you in that. This is the greatest commandment. Let's pray.